welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. Today, we are going to look at the week of 4th Lent. 4th Lent. Or the 4th Sunday in Lent. We would start on the Sunday. You'll notice the scriptures uh, in your post are start with Sunday and they go through Saturday. And then the next week, it'll be the 5th Sunday in Lent. Now, there are five Sundays in Lent followed by Holy Week which concludes with Easter. And then we go into the Easter season. Now, before the Lenten season is Epiphany. And we celebrate Epiphany at the beginning of each year as Jesus shows himself. But now we're in the Lenten season and we are in the fourth week and this is an opportunity to continue with our Lenten practices, self-reflection, prayer, fasting, Bible study, worship, and just kind of overall evaluating your life in Christ. How are you doing in Christ? How is your relationship with Christ? I also think of it in terms of virtue and vice. What are the virtues in my life that need to be extended, that need to be developed, that need to be added? And the vices, of course, we want to subtract those. We want to identify them, then we want to subtract them out of our lives. Now, daily office lectionary reading the readings from day to day, from Sunday to Saturday, are a wonderful way to think about the scriptures, reflect on the scriptures, pray about the scriptures, see what God is saying. We have been in the daily office lectionary in Lent for three weeks now. Of course, this week is the fourth Sunday in Lent, the fourth week in Lent, and next week, the fifth. We have been in Jeremiah, in Romans, and in John. And as I've said previously, I don't know how you can get better than Jeremiah Romans and John. So let's continue on. We are in Jeremiah 14. Now, the people in Jeremiah's time, this is about 600 BC. They go into captivity. There's a, there's several captivity, there's several a series of captivities, meaning there are a series of dates that the people of Israel go into, into captivity. Uh, they are going to go to Babylon. The Babylonians are very powerful at this time. The people have disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord is punishing them because of their disobedience and carrying them off into captivity. By 587, the temple is destroyed, uh, Jerusalem is uh, destroyed, and the people are led into captivity. Jeremiah is sharing the word of the Lord during this time, and he's warning the people. Look at what it says in chapter 14, 1. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, her cities languish, they wail for the land, a cry goes up from Jerusalem, the nobles send their servants for water, they go to the cisterns, they find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing, they cover their heads, the ground is cracked because there's no rain in the land, the farmers are dismayed and they cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there's no grass. Something terrible is going on. Something terrible is going on. Through verse 9. Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. It feels like the Lord's forsaking them because all these terrible things of happening are happening. So he's pleading with the Lord, please do not forsake us. 17 to 22. The prophets are prophesying lies, verse 14. 
in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. Remember how I told you in Jeremiah how the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. The prophet delivers it to the people. That word is God's word, and they are supposed to obey it. Now, unfortunately, there are lying prophets. There are people that are not speaking the word of the Lord. The Lord says that they are speaking lies. The Lord has not sent them. The Lord has not appointed to them. Appointed them. The Lord has not spoken to them. That is a very, very serious problem. 14.22, do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Can they do anything? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, your God, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. You are the one who does all this. So he's asking them to acknowledge what he's done. And they won't do it. So they're suffering as a result of not obeying the word of the Lord. In our lives, we want to do what God says. We've got to find a way to do what God says. It's going to go a whole lot better if we do what the Lord says. Now, this continues on as we look at Jeremiah through the next several days. Jeremiah 16, 10 to 21. When you tell these people all this and they ask you, why has the Lord decreed such a great disaster among us, against us? See, God's going against them. What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? Then say to him, verse 11, it is because your fathers forsook me and allowed other gods and served and worshiped them. They forsook me and they did not keep my law. We do what we want to do. We do not keep the law of the Lord. We do not keep the commandments of the Lord. We do our own thing. We go our own way. This will bring disaster upon you. My eyes are on all their ways, 17, verse 17 of 16. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin, because they have defiled my land with the lifeless forms of their vile images and have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. That is not good. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, 19 to 27. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the gate of the people through which the kings of Judah go in and out. Stand also at the other gates of Jerusalem. There's gates surround, you know, there are walls around Jerusalem and there are gates to get in. Okay, protect themselves. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and all the people of Judah and everyone living in Jerusalem who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. And then he tells them the word of the Lord. He shares the word of the Lord with them in 17. In 18, chapter 1 through 11. Verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil. Remember how important repentance is. Repents of its evil then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I planned. So he says in verse 11, Turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Great Lenten practice. Great Lenten discipline. Verse 12, chapter 18. But they will reply, it's no use. 
We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. Now, the Lord tells them exactly what to do. And they say, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to continue with our own plans. Enjoy chapter 18. Chapter 22. Chapter 22, 13 to 23. This is judgment against evil kings. 13 to 23. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, verse 13, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms, so he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it with red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, verse 16, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart, verse 17, are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. The Lord sees what we're doing every day. The Lord watches our going in and our coming out. Be aware of that and act accordingly to the word of the Lord. 23. Now, this is positive news. This is where the righteous branch where Jesus has talked about in Jeremiah. The days are coming, verse 5, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So amidst all this bad news and terrible news, God is going to bring a savior. He's going to bring a righteous branch. He is going to be someone that's going to save their people from their sins. So you have this interplay between both of those things happening in the prophets. It's quite extraordinary. Lastly, on Saturday, we have Jeremiah 23, 9 to 15. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, God says. All my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and his holy words. The land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land lies parched, and the pastures in the desert are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Both the prophet and the priest are godless, even in my temple, I find their wickedness, declares the Lord. It's a disaster. The prophets are not doing what God says. The priests are not doing what God says. The land is full of adulterers. The, the, the land is cursed. The prophets are following an evil course. And if the prophet and the priests are not doing what they're saying, what's going on with the people who hear the word of the Lord and the priest performs the functions of the Lord? It's disastrous. And so the Lord is declaring what the truth is, and then he tells them what to do. If they do it, they will be forgiven and restored. If they don't do it, they will be cursed and condemned. Romans chapter 7 is a very famous chapter in the Bible, and it has to do with the idea of struggling with sin. Now, again, what I'm trying to do is share with you in about a 25-minute period to go over these scriptures for the week of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospel reading. This is a very complicated 
uh, chapter, chapter 7. And you can see that we look at that on Monday and Tuesday, and then we look at chapter 8 and chapter 9 the rest of the week. Paul says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I'm sure all of us can appreciate that statement. It's no, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. The sin that I know that's there is so strong inside of me. I want to do something different, but the sin is killing me. I know that nothing good lives in me that that's in my sinful nature. I can't do anything good, he says. I'm sure you can appreciate that too. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Verse 19, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. I don't want to do evil, but I keep doing evil. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. The sinfulness in my life, in my sinful nature, is causing me to do things I don't want to do, that I know is wrong, but I do it anyway. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, verse 21, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do what God says. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The rescuer is Jesus. That's the only way you're going to get rescued from this problem. And from what I read to you from 14 on, all of us can identify with. We do things we don't want to do. We do things we know are wrong. We do it anyway. Who's going to rescue me? Because if I don't get rescued, I've got a very serious problem. That leads us into one of the great chapters of the Bible, and that is Romans 8. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more condemnation. If you are in Christ today, there is no con condemnation. You are protected from the curse of the law. You are protected from the condemnation of God. Now, if you are outside of Christ, you are not protected. Let me be very clear. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you are not protected. If you're in Christ, you are. Because, he says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was killing me, chapter 7 of Romans. I've now been forgiven. This is what Lent is all about. It's the preparation for being forgiven, confessing your sins, confessing your wrongdoing, getting in right standing with God. And then, of course, Easter, we thank God for the resurrection power of the Lord, which saves us from our sins. For what the law was powerless to do in verse 3, chapter 8, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God sent, did by sending his son into the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. He says, Verse 6, the, man, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Two things working. The sinful nature or being in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're saved, and you have all these wonderful blessings. 
If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, verse 17, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, that we may also share in his glory. Chapter 8 is a very, very, very important chapter. So we want to be led by the Spirit of God. We do not want to be led by the flesh. The flesh has been killed in Christ. The sinful, our sinful nature has been forgiven in Christ. He took upon himself our sins that our sinful nature produces. Remember I said that in chapter 7. Okay? So, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, verse 28 of chapter 8, who have been called according to his purpose. So what shall we say in response to this, verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. It's a great question. If God is for you, who can be against you? Answer, uh, nobody. Because God's greater than anything, even death and even sin. I'm convinced, 38 and 39, that neither death, death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, this chapter is a wonderful antithesis to chapter 7 and preparation for chapter 9, 10, and 11. It shows the importance and the profundity of Christ in your life. Then finally, for the New Testament, chapter 9, 1 to 18, he's talking about the people of Israel. He says, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, verse 5, who is God over all forever. Amen. It is not as though God's word has is, word is failed. Now, what he's trying to do is, okay, where is Israel in regards to Christ? With the coming of the Messiah and the fact that much of Israel has disavowed Jesus, killed Jesus, not supported Jesus, not listening to Jesus. What does that mean for them? Chapter 9. Chapter 6 of John. Chapter 6 of John. Much to think about in Jeremiah and certainly in Romans. But we have the same thing in John. We have the sixth chapter that's basically covered this week. And we have some spectacular readings. First, we have the feeding of the 5,000. How does a person feed that many people with very little? Five small barley loaves and two small fish. Do you see what it says in verse 9? Five small barley loaves, two small fish. How far will they go among so many? On verse 12, there was so much left over that they didn't want to waste the food, and they filled 12 baskets. 12 baskets of the pieces of the five barley loaves. This is a great person. Well, if you didn't think that was pretty spectacular, he walks on water next. And he speaks to them. It is I, don't be afraid. They're terrified who walks on water. Immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The people came and wanted to hear him. 
So we had the great miracle of the 5,000. We had the great miracle of the walking on water. Then he goes into one of the most important discourses in the Bible, the bread of life. Now, you got to go back to Israel and Exodus where God sustained them with manna in the wilderness, okay? And he sustained them for a very long time. And when they woke up in the morning, they had bread to eat. And so what happens here is that Jesus becomes the bread that people eat. This is why you have Eucharistic denominations where they take very seriously Holy Communion. And they take very seriously the body and blood of Christ. And they see that as a representation of being fed by the Lord on a regular basis. What does he say in verse 27? Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Don't worry about eating every day with food that might spoil. You need to be concerned with the food that endures to eternal life that has a supernatural quality to it that will sustain you no matter where or when or how. So Jesus is placing our emphasis in our daily living not on temporal reality but on eternal reality. And he reminds us of that throughout the scriptures. Then he talk, they talk about a miraculous sign. And then he says very extraordinarily in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. So they are going to be satisfied eternally. He's not satisfying them physically. He's satisfying their soul. Big difference. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay? It's going to be fantastic. I've come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. My Father's will, verse 40, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So this is about salvation, and this is about daily sustenance by Jesus to us, to the believer, on a daily basis, in terms of their spirituality, not in terms of their physicality. That's the food we eat on a daily basis. He said, don't worry about that. This is a salvation issue. This is about eternity. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Verse 47 of chapter 6. Well, they have lots of arguments as you read that long chapter, and I hope you will enjoy it very much this week. And then the disciples start saying, this is a hard teaching, verse 20, 60. Who can accept it? Aware that the disciples were grumbling, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet some of you do not believe. In the end, it's about belief. It's about salvation. It's about thinking about these scriptures and praying about them, as we saw in Romans chapter 7. And of course, Jeremiah was constantly contemplating what God was saying and then watching the people respond to it, listening to how they respond to it. And Jesus is doing the same thing. So you have these three incredible people, Jeremiah the prophet, Paul the apostle, Jesus Christ. And they are dealing with issues of their day and they are sharing the word of the Lord with the people. And so we get, on a weekly basis, 
and on a daily basis, weekly basis to share with you, daily basis to read and pray about what is being said in the scriptures. I hope and pray that you'll continue to have a holy Lent, that these scriptures that you and I share on a daily basis will bring you much blessing, much insight, and much wisdom. God bless you. We'll see you next week.